With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tells. Thank you so much for joining us as we continue to do what we always do, turn down the noise of a very noisy news cycle, get to the information we need so that we can discern the times we live in. This situation in Congress, we've been covering it, the fiscal discussions, the budget discussions, the spending discussions, the government shutdown that is looming. This is why we have people like our friend Eric Garcia. He actually is in Congress reporting on this. He talks to him. That's why we have him in to talk about it. It's a complicated issue. I want to go over some basics of government funding and government spending so that we have a baseline for discerning what's happening because almost every Congress critter, almost every commentator, almost every news media outlet, almost just pretty much everybody isn't talking about what's actually going on here. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of partisanship. There's a lot of posing and preening. Nobody in Congress cares about fiscal responsibility. Oh, I, I know they say the words, but they don't really because you don't hear them talking about what the government's actually spending money on. Now, they'll mention some pet things that inflame their base and get them fired up or make the other side look bad. But they're not really interested in physical responsibility. You know how I know that? Because we have decades and decades and decades of evidence that they don't care about being fiscally responsible, except when they're pitching their own reelection campaigns and want to say, look how physically responsible I tried to be in my failure theater. And then they go home and go, look how much money I got our area or our state or our district or whatever the case may be. This has always been the game in Congress. I'm not even knocking them. That's just the way it is. Let's go to the data. We're going to link to this. It'll be on the herdtel.substack.com notes of the show. This is what the government spends its money on. Remember, there's two kinds of government spending. There's mandatory and discretionary. Discretionary is a very much smaller number than the mandatory, but we'll get to that later. What does the government actually spend its money on? So when they say things like we want to be fiscally responsible, you can pull this out and go, well, we spend this much money on this. Why is this? Do you know where your government money is actually going? Again, this is from treasury.gov. This is not somebody's opinion. This is just the raw numbers. Okay. What does the government spend money on for fiscal year 2023? Uh, they break down into categories and the agencies that spend them. Here's the categories. 23% of government spending is on Social Security. 15% on health. 13% on national defense. A lot of people want to complain about how much we spend on the military and we're spending too much money elsewhere and not spending 13% national defense behind Social Security and health. 13% on Medicare, which you could kind of lump into health and Social Security as entitlements. We'll talk about that later. Income security, 13%. Net interest on the debt, 11%. That number, by the way, within the next few years is going to exponentially grow until it is bigger than defense and bigger than these other things we're talking about. Another key that they're not really serious about fiscal discipline. Veteran benefits and services, the second or third largest department of government, depending on how you count the post office, 
Transportation, 2%. Community and regional development, 2%. Mostly grants and things like that. Administration of justice, the legal system, 1%. And then roughly 2% for everything else. If you break it down by agency, Department of Health and Human Services, 28%. Social Security Administration, 23%. That's over half of all government spending, just those two things. Department of the Treasury, the managing of the money, that's 19%. Department of Defense military programs, 13%. Again, that's in fourth place. A lot of people talk about like that's where we spend all our money. Not so. Department of Veteran Affairs, 5%. Department of Agriculture, 4%. Personnel management, Department of Transportation, Department of Labor, those are all at 2%. Independent agencies uh, comprise of 1% and 2% are miscellaneous others. That's how the government actually spends its money. Are you noticing a theme? How's the government doing? If you set down like a kitchen table budget, which by the way is a stupid example, you can't kitchen table budget the US government. Total spending for fiscal years 2015 through 2022. Inflation adjusted 2022 dollars last year because we're in 23 still through October. Total spending for the government was 6.27 trillion versus $25 trillion in gross domestic product. Well, that's good, right? That's healthy budgeting. In fact, spending's actually gone down a little bit the last few years. There was a huge jump 2019 through 2020 and early 2021 because of COVID, obviously, and we just spent like drunken sailors. GDP has ticked up since 2020, but it took a slight dip and then it's ticked back up. So that sounds really good, right? Not really, because this is where that debt comes in. Over $30 trillion of it now. And now you see the problem. These are just baseline numbers. Where the government's spending its money, how it's spending it, the percentages, how much we're spending, gross domestic product, and the debt of over $30 trillion. These are the core numbers you need to know before you start wading into the continuing resolutions and the budgets and the spending and all that sort of kind of argument. Do you know how your government spends its money? Ask them. The vast majority of our government spending is on healthcare related things and social security and entitlements. A vast amount of our debt goes towards that sort of thing. And the interest on that debt is starting to surpass what we spend on defense and parts of that healthcare and social safety system. Those are the questions we need to be asking. We are in the situation in Congress we are in with the failure theater, with the chaos, with the hot mess. And yes, the Republicans have the House, so they're going to get the blame for this one. But the Democrats haven't been much better on this. Let's be honest. The chaos is because we tolerate it, because we don't take fiscal responsibility. It's not the government. It's not Congress that doesn't take it seriously. We don't take it seriously because they take seriously what we take seriously. We've told them, conditioned them, and trained them for decades now that it doesn't really matter as long as they give lip service to it and don't have a government shutdown that really affects too many people too much, then we'll be okay with it until the next cycle as long as they tickle our ears, pat our head, and throw some money our way when a crisis like COVID comes. Who doesn't take fiscal responsibility seriously? None of us do. Prove us wrong. You can't. The evidence demands a verdict. We are an unserious people in an unserious country when it comes to fiscal responsibility. More Hertel right after this.
Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, good friend of ours back on the program. He does local journalism, which is an important thing. That's why we keep having him on up there in Massachusetts or however they say it up in them their parts. Adam Bass and Mass, how are you, sir? Good to be here again, Andrew. And hello, everybody. It's great to be back. <laughs> He's a reporter for North Star reporting up there. Uh, the reason I'm having you on, I like doing this when we have a big, loud national story to bring it down to the local level. Mm -hmm. uh, where you report on, not that you don't comment on national stuff. You've written in Ordinary Times with us before about other things. Look, immigration is a big old mess. It has been for my entire lifetime, probably be will be for the remainder of our lifetimes. The current migrant story, though, landed in your lap, and you took it from a local perspective, and I want to bring that perspective to everybody else. But let's start with what your local is. What is your community, that North Attleboro area, People think Massachusetts, they probably think different things, probably Boston and everybody else and things like that. Walk us through the stereotypes, but explain your local area so we understand local news, what we're actually talking about right. here. Okay, so I cover a place called North Alboro, Massachusetts. It's a suburb, excuse me, it's a town uh, that's in Bristol County. This is the southeastern part of the state. Uh, usually it's divided into two different parts, the southeastern part. You have the northern part, which I cover, which is more traditional, that area focuses on those who are upper middle class and and those who have blue collar and white collar jobs we also have the southern part of the area which is new bedford that's also where i cover these are for the inner city folks those who are from portugal from the azores and those who are fishermen that's another area i cover but for north alboro alone though that's an area filled with people who are it's your typical suburb of massachusetts very white, very much upper middle class. You do have some areas of lower of low income working there, but not as much anymore. Those have sort of moved out into the rural parts of the western part of the state. Yeah, and when I say you cover this local area, you know, y'all had a big fire about two weeks ago. You were right there on the spot interviewing yes. folks. You do this all the time. How does that change perspective? Because something like this, like you're covering it locally, it'll get picked up. The state, the largest, uh, the people from Boston and other areas, New England, they'll come in and cover something like this. How does being a local reporter affect how you look at Because we talk about local reporters, but you are one. Just explain it to people how what you do is just a little bit different than, say, the regional TV station or the national correspondent that might come in for a big story and leave. They'll, they'll talk to you. They'll want that background. But just talk about how you do it a little bit differently and why that's important. The reality is that it, it, you have to take a very individualistic approach to it. You have to talk to people basis by basis rather than looking at it at just the big picture. It's sort of like building up a story as a whole. You start off small, you know, who's coming in, who are these people, the basic who, what, when, where, why, and how's. And then you sort of think about it in a bigger sense, you know. What are the people in charge of the town doing? Um, for example, in the story I wrote, which we will get to, they have a plan. But if you look at it on a state level, it, the state seems a little out of it right now, or the na and certainly the national level where we haven't had immigration reform since the 90s, or a push for that since 97. So the reality is that when you're looking at a local story, you have to look at it from the local people the people who are part of the neighborhood. You know that old Sesame Street song, who are the people in your neighborhood? That's what I do. I find those people in the neighborhood and I talk to them. How are they affected by a national level crisis or how they view it as a local level crisis? 
Adam Bass joining us, reporter. All right, let's do what you just said then, the who, what, where, and why of the reporting here. Who are these migrants? Why did they bring them there? What's the plan? Walk us through the particulars of this segment. Again, this is a national story. This is happening in a lot of, you know, places like New York City and the border are getting the headlines. This is happening plenty of other places. Walk us through it. So the story I wrote, which you can find on NorthStarReporter.com, is that there are a total of 60 migrants that are now, have now been relocated to North Alboro, specifically in the Best Western Hotel. This is a part of the state's the state's workaround to get to find places for to shelter migrants. Because in Massachusetts, we have something that is called a right to shelter law, which means anyone who resides in Massachusetts has a right and a requirement to be inside of a shelter regardless of their status. Naturally, if we had a lot of housing, that would be fine, but we don't, and our shelter system is overwhelmed. So because of that, you have all these migrants coming into the shelter system and going to hotels because they don't have the required shelter that they need. In North Alboro, like many of the other communities in Massachusetts, they now have families coming in. Now, it should be noted that the, that the officials of North Alboro are saying, look, We'll take them in. We're ready to integrate them into our community. We're ready to help them become part of our community. But there's a problem. The problem being that they aren't getting as much information from the state about who these migrants are. Not not on their criminal records or anything like that, but basic information about, you know, are what do they have any illnesses that need to be taken care of, special medication that they need, you know. Uh, I wrote about how one migrant needed special medication for a medical condition and the health director of North Alboro didn't know that until the last minute. So she had to go and pick up a prescription medication. Um, they also didn't know how many how many of these families had children that were school age. So you had the superintendent come over to the hotel and say, all right, I'm going to talk to each family and see which kids can go to school here. And because of that lack of information, uh, the town officials, not just in North Alboro, but in several other communities are getting concerned. They don't, they're not concerned about having the migrants here, Andrew. That's a that's fine for them. The problem is just the lack of communication, so they can't help them. Yeah, you already touched on it a minute ago. Um, one of the major problems with the immigration debate, the immigration problem, all aspects of this is the federal, the state, the local. Nobody's on the same page here. Even when they try to be, they're not. The regulations are Byzantine. Um, certain states have certain laws. They don't all match up. This is a mess under the best of circumstances. I like how you reported this, though, because I'm big on leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. You, the way you wrote this, you went to your local leadership. Give us a couple of the people that are in local leadership that are prominent in your story, because those are the people we don't talk about. We just talk about other than you might see a mayor on TV or something like that. Talk about these local leaders who are trying to solve this problem. They've got some hamstringing. They got their hands tied, but they've also got these people and they've got a community that they're trying to integrate with these folks. You focused on that in your piece. And I think that's an important thing that doesn't get a lot of focus. Those local leaders introduce us to a couple of them. Right. And I'll also say that they have a plan. Let's start off with the first and foremost person in leadership. That's the town administrator, Michael Borg. Uh, for those who don't know, a town administrator is basically the executive operative of a town. The town council, which is the legislative legislative body gives the orders to the to the excuse me to the executive body that being the town manager town, town manager and he puts them into effect now board said in a meeting with legislative with legislative 
uh, elected officials, these being Representative Adam Scanlon of Thalboro, Senator Paul Feeney of Foxborough, and Representative Bill Driscoll Jr. of Milton, he said, look, we have a plan. We are ready to integrate these migrants into our community. We are ready to hand out pamphlets. We are ready to, to, to have our, our boots on the ground to help them, have our firefighters help them, have our police help them. But the problem is that we don't know what the problems are with these migrants. And I and let me say this. They don't even use migrants that much. They use the word people because they are people at the end of the day. These are people with needs and necessities, much like you and me. They need food. They need shelter. They need an education. And, you know, Borg stressed this too. They need work. They need to work in North Alboro. And he's been trying to get that attention known to the legislative staff of these legislators I talked about, Adam Scanlon, Paul Feeney, uh, Bill Driscoll Jr. Those are the big leaders who are at the meeting. And then you sort of talk about, you know, who else is in charge? The superintendent, who is considered to be one of the most beloved persons in North Alboro, John Antonucci. He made a comment at that meeting saying, look, these people are afraid. They are, they need help. But we can't do that help, and we can't really show, put, bring our arms out and embrace them if we don't know how to help them. And what they're asking for is money. They're asking for funding to help provide, to buy clothes, food, medication. They're also asking for expedited work permits, which Governor Healy of Massachusetts has been pressing the Biden administration to do. They're basically saying, look, don't stand in our way. Let us help these migrants. Please provide those resources that we need. joining us reporter for the North Star Reporter. Is there a disconnect between the legislative level and the governor level and the local level here? Because look, this is the land of the Democrats. There's not a lot of party difference here. There's not a lot of ideological difference, but there does seem to be some communication difference or maybe who's supposed to be doing what difference between those three groups of people. And it seems like the locals are getting frustrated because the other two levels don't even seem to be working together very well and or communicating with them. Is that a fair way to lay it out? It's a little more complex than that. See, there's like five tiers in Massachusetts. You have Governor Healy on top. Then you have legislative leadership who are really in control of everything. It's very centralized power here in Massachusetts. Imagine if you know, all the all the shots are called by House Speaker Ron Mariano and Senate President Karen Spilka, who from time to time have a decent working relationship for all we know. But there have been times where they don't see eye to eye and they haven't been talking to each other that much. They're having a meeting actually right now in the state house as we speak with Governor Healy. So there could be some leeway on that. But then you also have the next tier, which is the rank and file. These are the, these are the representatives who are you know calling out the Healy administration saying, look, we're concerned about you know, the lack of communication from you guys about who these, who these people are and why, and you know, how can we take care of them? And what you don't see is call is, is, is leadership calling Healy's administration out. 
if they did, there would be much more of an impact there, Andrew. And then, of course, you get to the local level. And these are the these are the people who are on the front lines taking care of these migrants and saying, look, you know, we're ready to take care of them. We are ready to bring them in. But we need the legislature and the executive branch to move quickly on this and give us some information and help. So it's really a four-tier system, governor, leadership, rank and file, and local. And right now, the rank and file and the local are really talking it up right now. Rank and file is a little more antsy in terms of their complaints compared to the local uh, local leadership, whereas leadership, you know, the legislative leadership, Sp uh, Spilka and Mariano, haven't been really saying anything, which is sort of odd because they're the ones who have some of the most power in this state. We are a state where the legislature is the most powerful branch. So, you know, obviously, it's probably great for Maura Healy because obviously the last thing you need is a fight with the legislature, with the legislative leadership. But it's also not great because it, it, people are getting concerned here. There was a recent Mass Inc. poll that just dropped where people are getting more and more concerned about the number of migrants coming in and the fact that there's really no clearness on what's going to happen. Yeah. And let's talk about the numbers of this for a minute, because we're talking 20 families, roughly 60 people that you're dealing with just in your community. Obviously, we're talking millions of people when you extrapolate it all the way out. What's the, the, the micro lessons for the macro problem here for folks that other communities, things like that? What are you seeing? What are the lessons here? Is it obviously the leadership, but give us a better number. To, is it the communication? Is it the planning? Is it getting notice ahead of time? Is it the resources? Obviously, all of this costs money. People's going to want more and more money. Give us one or two things here going forward. Well, the thing the thing about this, and, and Borg brought this up, and, and Michael Borg brought this up in the meeting, it's going to be a fly-by-the-seat-your-pants situation, you know? This is, a, this is a very nuanced system of how migrants come into Massachusetts and how they are processed, because obviously... You know, cl clarity is necessary, especially in all of Massachusetts politics. We are not a very clear state in how we do communications, uh, not just through leadership and local leaders, but also through the press. We unfortunately don't get a lot of don't get a lot of uh, finding outs of what's going on, especially behind closed doors. We're kind of opaque in that regard. But the lesson here is that the le the local leaders are trying their best. They are trying their best with the tools that they are given. And right now, it, it determines a response from the from the legislature and Governor Healy. So leadership and communication are the two big ma macro lessons. The micro lesson here, and, and this is what North Alboro Town leadership has been doing, is making a plan. You know, they, they made a four-step plan uh, to focus on to focus on intention of the objective of why they're here, which is to integrate them into the community, su supply them with support, which is, you know, water, food, and, you know, all the necessities that they need. Then orientation, which is talking to them and saying, all right, welcome to North Abro. Here's what we'd love you to do. And of course, the final step, which is, of, which is the integration, which is bringing them into the community. It's not about, you know, anything complex. It's about making sure that these people have a chance here. Yeah. Adam Bass and Mass joining us. Uh, turn the lens on your own profession a little bit. I think immigration is like a lot of other things. Uh, the modern news media hasn't quite caught up with how fast social media moves on stories like this. What do you think the journalism level, the reporting level needs to be doing a little bit differently? Because it's not enough to just report on this stuff. You're also communicating it. 
What do you think we need to learn about this? Because part of the problem, you just mentioned it, the communication of it, the coverage of it, there's a lot of unclarity. Nobody really knows what's going on between the levels. What would you say to journalists that are going to try to cover this or even, you know, citizen journalists, folk reporters, people like that that just want to cover it as writers and bloggers and social media? Give them a couple of points of how to do this a little bit better and a little bit more effectively, because you can't complain about the public not having good information if there's no units to give them good information. Right. Well, the first thing I would say, and this is something I try to do with all of my articles, keep it simple. You got to keep it simple for every single article because you're explaining not to experts. That's one of the big problems I've seen in the journal journalism field right now. We're trying to focus on impressing our peers when we should be impressing our readership. Our readership just wants to know what's going on in our community and how they can maybe help or maybe learn about it. I try to do as much education in my in my piece as much as I can. I talk about the right to shelter law, what Healy has done, which is sending 250 National Guards members. There's also the fact that, you know, explain what the town is doing. Keep it small. Keep it part of the story. You know, I could talk about you know, how President Biden is handling the border, but I don't know if people care about that. They could just turn on the TV and listen to that. I'm giving them something else that they can learn about, how these migrants are being perceived here and what leadership, what their town leadership is doing, because clearly the town leadership cares. They want to make sure that everything is okay. And that sort of cuts through the nonsense of punditry and and just sort of just using immigrants as a talking point for one side or the other. Because honestly, immigration, and I will be 100% honest with this, it's a tough subject to cover. It is, I know one of my favorite friends and favorite reporters, Steph Solis, she does a great job of covering immigration when she when they can, excuse me. And when that happens, they admit that they always have a hard time and it's not an easy thing to do because this is not just, you know, some inanimate object you're talking about. These are lives, human people that you are talking about. It's not offshore wind where it's wind blades. It's not trains where it's just a bunch of machines moving on a track. These are living, breathing people that need the respect and honor that they deserve when you are covering a story. So keep it simple, talk to them, humanize everything, and don't try to make it big. You're just trying to tell a story. Yeah, and don't forget your audience is living, breathing people too. Too many writers, dude. I've been guilty of it once or twice. You forget they now they got emotions too. You might want to keep that in mind when you're writing your copy. Adam Bass, our reporter friend, he does a good job. We're going to link to this whole piece, North Star Reporter. Make sure you're following him. But for them to do that, they got to know how to do that. So tell them where they can follow you and keep up with you till we get you back on Hertel again, my well, friend. Well, you can you can always follow me at Adam Bass of Mass on Twitter. I refuse to call it X because it's such bad. It's such bad branding. But also you can find me on Blue Sky on the same name and Threads on the same name. There might be a day where I'm not on Twitter anymore because of Elon Musk charging everyone to use it. I can't do my job properly if I am charged. I, I work on a journalist's salary as is. Yeah, but you do good work. So appreciate you starving for our benefits so we can at least talk about what you're doing while you're struggling. <laughs> hey, it's life. almost Yom Kippur. I'll be starving anyways. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's the right attitude. Adam Bass. Our good reporting friend up in Massachusetts. Appreciate your insight on this. We'll talk again soon, my friend. All right. Take care. Thank you, sir.
technology. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Thrilled to have a new face on the program. Another one of our great young voices contributors, Eric Suarez, is with us. We're going to go back down south, talk about a little D.C. policy as it goes to one of our kind of frenemy countries right now, Venezuela, down in South America. Eric, how are you, my friend? Great. Thank you for the invite. Uh, thrilled to have you. Here we go again. We understand that there are certain things that poke through all other politics and ideology. Gas prices is one of them. Gas prices go up. Whoever's in the government's going to get the blame for it. Everybody's mad. Everybody's happy. Doesn't matter. Gas is a lagging indicator, and there's all kinds of economics that go into gas prices. However, when the gas prices go up, whoever's in power has got to do something about it. Well, Joe Biden's in power. He's got to do something about it. But one of those somethings he's doing about it involves Venezuela, and it looks not only on the surface like a bad idea, long term looks like it could be a very bad idea. It is. Um, well, we have to analyze the whole situation with Joe Biden and why he decided to go to Venezuela in the first place. And it all starts with um, environmental issues. It all starts with environmental causes that Joe Biden has decided um, to put forth in his policy, especially his energy policy. Uh, at the beginning of his term, we saw how he immediately blocked uh, the uh, Keystone Pipeline, which was going to be a huge, huge deal for U.S. energy and to keep uh, gas prices low to allow the U.S. to be independent on oil, on oil prices. And after that, um, just the worst thing that could have happened to his administration happened, which was uh, the Ukraine war, which disrupted oil prices across the globe. So when you combine those two things and global oil prices go skyrocket, then you find the situation that we're in and the situation that we were, um, especially the first two years of his administration when gas prices went up like crazy. And when you're that desperate, when you see how this is affecting or how it affected the Biden administration, he had no other choice to but to uh, go look for Venezuela, which is known as a very, a very oil-rich country, but also very known for uh, its highly totalitarian human rights abuses and many other uh, foreign policy that um, the U.S. usually rejects. But um, that's that's how Biden policy has been acting towards us in the last few years, and the main reason is oil. Yeah, it's not unusual for us to do business with untoward characters abroad. Look, we've been tied up in the Middle East for many, many years, including several conflicts. I remember I was there. Um, we know that there's bad people that we have to do business with. For folks that just haven't maybe paid attention or aren't familiar, give us the lay of the land in Venezuela as it exists today. Nicolas Maduro you know, he had some choppy water a couple of years ago, but has since reconsolidated power. Looks like he's in a pretty solid position. However, the entire country is still suffering greatly under his dictatorship. Uh, give folks the lay of the land of exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about Venezuela, the government, the dictatorship, and the people of Venezuela that are having to suffer under that. Because you need that piece of the puzzle before you get to why the policy is good or bad, right? Yes. Um, the Overall, Venezuela has been a country that has been under totalitarian rule over more than uh, 20 years. In Actually, I was born in 1999, already under the socialist regime of Hugo Chavez that then uh, was handpicked successor Ligo Las Maduro. Um, 
in throughout the years, you have seen a country that was very rich, very advanced compared to other Latin American countries, deeply collapse into economic, political, and human rights abuses. Um, it, it has become a chaos. I remember in 2014, you could see around people getting food from garbage and and eating from remains of food that went in the streets, going to open uh, garbage cans across the city, just looking for food. It was a big state of desperation. And that's on the economic side. When you go to the political rights abuses in 2014, in 2017, people went to the streets. They tried uh, to peacefully uh, look for change in the country and they were faced with repression like we haven't seen in our continent in a long time. We saw uh, young people my age and younger uh, at the time uh, killed uh, straight up um, murder by this regime that used not only uh, tear gas and, and uh, water trucks to just repress, but they also were filling uh, their guns with, um, let's say, not conventional uh, ammunition that resulted in the death of many people, especially young people who were the front line of those protests. And the ones who weren't killed, they were tortured for many years. So it's, it is a very dark, um, let's say, situation. It's a dark, it's a dark, um, it's a dark country when it comes to human rights. And that same, um, action, those, those actions led to the uh, migration of more than 7 million people, which is like 25% of our country. Um, especially young people have migrated across, across the, across the continent. So, it is a very dangerous regime. It's a regime that doesn't care about human rights. It doesn't care about its people. And that's the that's the partner that the administration has decided to make business with. Yeah. Eric Suarez joining us. You're writing in Real Clear World. We're going to link to the entire piece. A lot of links in this piece, by the way. Make sure you click through all the links as well so you get the full background. Kind of the harder your piece gets to something I want to talk about that, like, we, we mentioned the Middle East. Look, the House of Saud does really despicable things. They, they believe really bad things. They're not good people, the people that run Saudi Arabia. They know how to keep the oil flowing. You never question. In fact, the problem usually is they restrict it down so they can make more money off it. They know how to produce and put out oil. They're really good at it. One of the things you argue in your piece is even if you got past the moral stuff, even if you got past the dictatorship and all the bad stuff that's happened in Venezuela, Strictly on business terms, this doesn't make sense because they have production issues. They have not upgraded their infrastructure, especially in the last 20, 25 years as Chevron's really been restricted by the government. They can't get the outside in because of sanctions and things like that to upgrade and maintain the production facilities. They got all the oil in the world, but if you can't produce it, refine it, ship it, all that stuff, it's just a bunch of oil that's laying around. Talk about that aspect of it, because if you're talking about a business deal, which is what we're doing, we're cutting a business deal with them. They're not going to be a reliable partner on any facet. Correct. They're not a reliable partner. And there's two main reasons for that, uh, especially the first one is that the, the sanctions imposed on the Venezuelan government and the Venezuelan production sector are based on their commitment to reduce human rights abuses to reduce, uh, to allow for more democratic reforms and to allow for more freedom of speech on the streets. That was the logic in which the sanctions were imposed. 
to create that, sen that sense of change and enforce it by economic pressure. Uh, what Biden is doing, what President Biden is doing right now is trusting that the Venezuelan government will continue uh, some reforms or some attempts of making reforms in the country. Uh, the logic is that because the Venezuelan government went into negotiating table with the opposition and is, al and is allowing um, in between marks uh, uh, free uh, primary elections in the country, uh, the, the sanctions are reducing and now some uh, flow of oil is coming into the market and being able to negotiate. But the reality is that long term, we know that the Venezuelan government will not adhere to those advances. The Venezuelan government already in the primary has been persecuting candidates. It has been pressuring its followers to promote death threats and to um, attack certain candidates on the race. Uh, we're seeing that freedom of speech hasn't improved. We have seen that uh, human rights violations and tortures are still happening. So this policy, even on a, on a let's say, trust basis between the U.S. And, and a commitment of change has no future at all. So that's one of the main issues with this policy. And the second one, as, as you mentioned, is the production part. Venezuela is a country that its socialist policies has destroyed completely the production area, uh, the, the old production. Um, we used to produce more than, uh, I believe, 3 million barrels of oil per day, and now we don't produce even half of that. We don't produce even a quarter of that, even I could say. And the main problem with that is that if you want to believe that you can re revamp the oil sector in Venezuela and the sanctions will not, uh, will allow, removing the sanctions will allow for the, from the oil production uh, to, to increase. That's uh, not understanding the situation in Venezuela. That's not understanding the damage that has been caused by socially, by 20 years of socialist policies to the oil sector. And not understanding that the ones who are controlling the oil in Venezuela right now are the Iranians. So you're inviting even, uh, you're even funding more, uh, not only a very dangerous ally in Latin America, you're joining, you're funding one of your major enemies in, um, in the Middle East. One of the, Venezuela is so desperate to revamp its oil production that it has hired uh, Iranian companies and has sold some of their plants to Iranian to the Iranian government, which is something very dangerous for a region, but it's also very dangerous for the U.S. to depend on if, if we want to keep oil prices down. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. 
Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Eric Suarez joining us. You just mentioned it. Let's talk about it. The criticism of U.S. policy towards Venezuela. Look, this isn't any use. We've, we've heard it towards Cuba for years and other things. It's like, well, of course they're having trouble because we're sanctioning them. And of course they're turning to Iran and Russia and these untoward actors because we're sanctioning them to stop sanctioning them. It's a chicken and the egg argument. You have a dictatorship that's doing bad things, so you sanction them. And then they claim the sanctions is the root cause of all their problems and American imperialism, this, that, and the other. How do we parse through that argument? Because you've heard that all your life, quite literally in your case, because you're a young guy. You've heard this all your life. Well, it's all America's fault. It's all the sanctions fault. Yes, the sanctions have cause. How do we unglue that ball a little bit, do you think? Well, first, you have to understand the, the base of the sanctions and understand also the timeline of Venezuelan collapse. Uh, I feel like once you know those two things, you already can make your own judgment and that judgment is going to logically end that the sanctions did not cause Venezuela's collapse. So this, the, let's say the major economic uh, decline in Venezuela started in 2013, 2014. By that time, sanctions imposed by the U.S. weren't imposed on the economic sector, weren't imposed in, men, in, in the production sectors of the country. They were imposed on certain individuals. For example, President uh, Dictator Nicolas Maduro wasn't able to travel or have actives or have any kind of investment in the U.S., clearly because he was a um, sanctioned person. Uh, and many people around, the, uh, let's say, the leadership of the regime did, uh, were also sanctioned by that time. The real sanctions imposed on the, on the production sector came many years later by the Trump administration. So the previous... Uh, sanctions, let's say the, the personal sanctions, were imposed by the Obama administration and many administrations before. They were very common. But the other, uh, the more aggressive, if you want to call them like that, um, sanctions were imposed by Trump, the Trump administration. By that time that Trump, the Trump administration had already imposed those sanctions, Venezuela was already experiencing, experiencing a high decline in its economy. In its economy. So when you put those factors next to each other and you check the timeline, you cannot argue logically that the, um, the, the sanctions were the main cause for Venezuela's economic decline because that's a lie. And that's something that is uh, completely dispro uh, disproven. And second of all, um, the oil production sector has been collapsing in Venezuela way before the sanctions imposed on, on the oil sector. And when you read and analyze what the, uh, the main reasons for 
the sanctions were put on the economic sector in the first place, you can see that the Venezuelan regime has been using the, the, the oil production sector to first finance um, war equipment, to finance repression equipment, to finance human rights violations, and to finance themselves through corruption. So there is none of that money was actually benefiting the people. It wasn't benefiting the, um, it wasn't funding any positive, uh, let's say, program inside of Venezuela, like socialist claim. And the sanction, and you can see the result of that, because when imposed the sanctions, Venezuela did not collapse even more. In fact, after the sanctions were imposed, you could see that other sectors developed because the money laundry machine that Venezuela is had to find another source of revenue. So that's a very interesting fact that happened during those times. So when you know these two things and you know these two time, this timeline, you have to logically argue or come to the conclusion that in the end, the sanctions did not affect Venezuelan people. It did not affect the Venezuelan people. It affected the Venezuelan regime officials. It affected the regime. And it stopped and it put, him in, put them in such a dangerous position that they had to, especially from 2016 to 2020, um, allow the figure of, of Juan Guaido to, um, to be protected by the U.S. And they have to comply with U.S. Uh, policy. And, and, and they were on, on the, let's call it, they were under the mercy of the U.S., if you want to say in some, something like that way. Yeah, Eric Suarez joining us. Okay, we talked about that. This is a deal. The Biden administration, for all practical purposes, have cut a deal with Venezuela. What did we get? What did they get? Break down the actual particulars of this specific um, transaction because some of the things we gave them kind of raised a few eyebrows, and some of the things that we're getting back raised some eyebrows. It, it, it raises a lot of eyebrows and it raises a lot of concerns, especially. Uh, deep concerns because I feel this is one of the worst deals that the U.S. has ever made uh, that I have even that I remember. Um, just for context, this deal hasn't it wasn't just a one uh, one meeting one deal kind of kind of situation. It was uh, several meetings that have been happening through uh, many months, more almost a whole year, and that have been resulting in different outcomes. The first one. Uh, was the exchange of two of Nicolas Maduro's cousins that were uh, that were here in the U.S. would held over drug trafficking trafficking uh, charges. They were convicted and they were uh, prosecuted and convicted. Um, we gave uh, the first meeting gave away uh, traded them with some uh, U.S. citizens that were in Venezuela, also um, in jail. Some uh, oil businessmen that were over there. Uh, that was very interesting because that was the first time the U.S. broke its policy of dealing directly and recognizing um, the interim government of Juan Guaido as part of the Venezuelan government. And the second part is that um, it, it created a precedent where the U.S. did not have to directly talk with Juan Guaido's government but it could directly go and talk with the regime. And that was a very dangerous precedent that continued through the, through the, um, through the rest of the year. The second time, there was, when, the, when the oil prices started going uh, up across the globe, 
due to the Ukraine war and there's all supply in the world was going going down. Um, the sanctions were lifted and Venezuela was able to negotiate with other countries as well. Uh, the main company in the U.S. started negotiating and got lifted uh, and got allowed to, to negotiate with Venezuela was Chevron. And this allowed Venezuela to start regaining um, some ground that it had lost, some revenue that it had lost through the years. And at the end of the day, what ended up resulting from this deal has been up till now that the interim government of, of Juan Guaido has completely disbanded and disappeared. Um, Venezuela and the U.S. are negotiating basic, basically on the that the U.S. trusts that Venezuela will really adhere to the to their openness and to the democratic changes that they have. And what the U.S. gets is more oil supply. That it's a very weird deal because if you're negotiating with somebody, you expect equal um, equal, let's say, to have to have the equal leverage. And what I'm seeing from this negotiate, negotiation is that they, is that Maduro is gaining a lot of ground and the US is running solely that Maduro will keep its word, which is something that should not be, uh, that is not sound policy and it's definitely not a sound uh, agreement. You're dealing with a human rights abuser, you're dealing with a dictator, you're dealing with somebody who has no interest in remaining, in losing power and the deal is that he will allow reforms that will eventually lead him to lose his power. So this is not a sound agreement. This makes no sense at all. But that's the current situation that the U.S. is dealing with Venezuela. Suarez joining us. There's not a lot the U.S. can do other than outside pressure and Maduro again. He's kind of, he, he came a little close maybe a few years ago. He's kind of consolidated the power back down now. It doesn't look like he's going anywhere. What do you actually do with U.S. policy with something like this? Again, it's not unusual to have to deal with dictators. We deal with them in China. We deal with them in the Middle East. We deal with them also in Venezuela in this case. What do we actually do about it other than just watch it from afar Obviously, there's some things we're doing. We just saw in the news where, you know, we're going to let more Venezuelan immigrants into the country under special protection, that sort of stuff. But that, that's really small beer when you consider the enormity of the issues in Venezuela, because Venezuela has spilled out into the surrounding countries in South America. It part of the immigration problem and the migration problem that gets to the southern border. A lot of those are Venezuelans right now. This is a problem for the hemisphere and really the wider world. What should they be doing? Because economic pressure alone isn't going to change a dictatorship that this is ingrained, is it? No, pressure from, I, I believe that pressure from one country alone will not change. Even if, even from the mighty U.S., if you want to say it like that, it will not, it will not change most, especially because uh, Venezuela still has very important allies like China. It has, very, it has the aid of Iran. It has the aid of Russia. There's a big network of countries that align better with Venezuela than with the U.S. and that um, Venezuela has always been uh, very helpful for them 
in the matter of resources. So it's an important it's an important piece for their for their advancements. And even with pressure from the U.S., economic pressure from the U.S., it will not really help um, to bring down the, the Maduro regime. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that the U.S. pressure is not important. And that's one of my main criticisms with the Biden administration is that they're making it easier for the regime well, by, by reducing sanctions, by negotiating with them, by treating them like, like, a, like a regime that does not commit human rights abuses and does not deal with, um, has not tortured in the past uh, U.S. U.S. citizens. And that's a very dangerous precedent. That's something that the U.S. should not be allowing itself. It should be more strong in its stance and, and the deals be way more careful with the deals that we made with Venezuela. And the second thing that what we should do to um, to deal with the terrorists like that is first, um, it cannot be done by one country. The U.S. needs to start uh, finding cooperation with different countries in Latin America. The U.S. needs to focus more to find its allies in Latin America to coordinate um, actions against Venezuela and other allies of Venezuela around the region. Because it's not only Venezuela either. We have Cuba, we have Nicaragua, we have other countries in the region that have been aiding the Venezuelan cause in their dictatorship for years. We now see Mexico with Lopez Obrador, who is a very big supporter of both uh, Cuba and, and Venezuela and Nicaragua. So that, those things are very dangerous. Right now, it's a very difficult time to really take action on Venezuela because um, the whole the whole region has shifted left very drastically. And we see many governments in the region that are pro-left, uh, pro-Maduro, and, so, and the ones who are the least aren't that opposed, aren't opposed enough to really impose a change in the region and try to pressure them. Um, but definitely what the U.S. is doing is not helping the situation. Instead of putting more pressure and, and making it hard for Maduro to expand and to regain power and to regain the confidence of the regime, because at the end of the day, the regime starts down in itself, it will collapse by itself. What the, this administration has done is to give the power back and the confidence back and revenue back to the regime to keep to keep going forward. And in my opinion, this has been a big backtrack on the policy that Venezuela, for Venezuela that the US has been having. So while economic sanctions are not enough, and there is, there is really a need to act um, uh, as a region in cooperation, uh, reducing sanctions because it's not the right time right now to make those policies as a whole, uh, it's not an excuse. And definitely making the deals that the U.S. is making right now with Venezuela is not even, it's not even an action to, to keep the, the governments in line, to keep the regime in line. It's, it's just feeding more and more into the government and into the regime. And more years of this policy, if this policy continues, I feel that Venezuela could become a big danger in the region. Yeah, Eric Suarez, I think you touched on something really important. So let me ask you the bigger question as we go forward when it comes to Venezuela, because and this is bigger than the Biden administration or the Trump administration, because this is more of a generational problem. Your cohort, the rising generation, you just talked about it. There's a lot of a leftward shift. There's a 
shift back towards strongmen that we haven't seen since the 70s and 80s. And we know how that went in the 70s in some countries like Chile and other places. It did not go well. Even Argentina, if you go back far enough, it doesn't work out well. How much of that, what's the attitude towards America? Because frankly, there's not a lot of appetite in America for foreign policy right now, across the board, both sides, both parties. There's, you know, their focus is elsewhere. We've got internal troubles. Of course, you already mentioned, you know, Ukraine and the war with Russia's invasion there. America just hasn't paid attention to South America and Latin America a whole lot in the last 20, 25 years or so, other than a few specific issues. How has that changed how we are perceived the country, America, by that rising cohort, your peers down south? Because I think that has a lot to do with that, doesn't it? It does, and and that's something that we can analyze historically. I feel I believe that the last, let's say, uh, government or or administration that tried to do something and had like an, an an idea or or proposals that deal with Latin America was Bush with the NAFTA. Sorry, with the with the Free Trade Agreement of the Americas, which was his proposal back in the two thousands, I believe. Um, but that was very a very wrong time to do it or not wrong but but unfortunate time to propose and to have a, a very important plan for the region because it was also the rise of hugo chavez which was a powerful a very powerful uh figure in latin american history uh love him or hate him i i really dislike him as you may know as most venezuelans but hugo chavez was a very important figure in the history of latin america as a whole we haven't seen a shift or or a or as such a popular figure in the region since Fidel Castro. And when a, when such a figure appears and such figure is so, is so radical and so left-leaning, it has a generational impact. I was born in 1999 when he first got into power. And since that moment, you have seen how generations of Venezuelans really that grew up with him, especially in, um, in Venezuela, see him as as a figure like you could compare with the Republican Party, like people see Reagan. It's that figure of he was our leader. He was the he was the man that represented the good change in the country. Even if they're wrong, that's how they see it. And outside of Venezuela, he's highly appreciated and highly respected by many people as well, especially from the left. And when you come with that and, and after generations and seeing everything that has been going on, in Venezuela and the lack of the U of U.S. involvement in the region has um, resulted in a huge shift in Latin America in the recent years. We now see that there's many governments that uh, support a line of thought very similar to Maduro in the region. We saw in Peru with Pedro Castillo, who was a literal Marxist, uh, win elections in a few years ago. We saw Gustavo Petro, which is very left leaning he was uh, part of a guerrilla, a guerrilla in colombia also wind power left wing guerrilla uh, we see lula da silva who has been a long time ally from uh, from the venezuelan regime gain power in, in brazil we have seen uh, 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 the kirchners win power in argentina again uh, we have we now see amlo uh, lopez obrador in mexico who has been a clear ally from the regime uh, win power in Mexico. We have seen a, a whole new generation of left-wing uh, governments rise up, and that's a combination from uh, the figure of Hugo Chavez and the lack of U.S. 
of a U.S. plan for the region. The, the U.S. has been isolating itself from, from South America. I don't think there is a plan about South America. And I think that the policies imposed in Latin America from the U.S. or, or, the, or the approach that the U.S. has taken on Latin America has been more reactive than proactive. You don't see a plan. You don't see a guideline. You don't know what to do, how to navigate it. You don't see a, an end goal. You see a, a lot of reactions to what's going on. And that's very dangerous. And the result of that is a region that no longer considers you a leader, that no longer no longer pays attention or, or, or cooperates with you, that has been isolating from you again. And when it comes to politics and when it comes to cooperation, um, it, it, that's that's terrible, and that's the result of an isolationist uh, foreign policy from the U.S. Or not isolationist, but uh, uh, rem removing itself from from Latin America and from their regional politics. Yeah, the thing with foreign policy is it has to be consistent and it has to be coherent. And America is not good at either one of those for quite a while now, Eric. Suarez, this has been a fantastic conversation. We'll definitely be having you back. We're going to link to his whole piece in Real Clear World uh, on the Venezuelan oil deal. Make sure you read that. Let folks know where they can keep up with you and how they can follow you until we get you back on the show again, my friend. Yeah, um, uh, my handle in both Twitter and Instagram is at Eric Suarez N. So that's it. <laughs> Simple. We got to work on your branding because you got good stuff. We got to get you some stuff. Maybe get you some merchandise, something. Eric Suarez, <laughs> Thank you. one of our great young voices contributor. Outstanding job. Great insight. We'll talk again soon, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, sir. That'll do it for this edition of Herd Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're even on some podcasts over in India. You folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program, make sure we can tailor it to get it to you. Heard Tell Show or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do, herdtell.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Heard Tell. We also have Heard Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the Twice on Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive, so we're going to have some specials, some best of, things like that, and also some of the food writing from Yonder and Home. We're starting to re-up that as well. we got over 600 episodes of Heard Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. So sign up for the Substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. Doesn't cost you anything more than a click herdtell.substack.com we sure appreciate it and follow us on social media herdtell show on the twitter four for the fires my personal twitter handle no we're not going to call it x but if you could share us and let folks know that our programs we're checking out we sure would appreciate it so wherever you are across the street or around the world we hope you're well we hope you are well fed we'll talk to you real soon for the next herdtell 
All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.